Welcome back to the 199th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the push for ranked choice voting and how it could come back to bite the Republicans in the butt, a new call for redistribution of wealth, and how we're going to break down some of the arguments they present in the article, as well as a article talking about Texas and their possible succession from the union coming in March. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So we're going to talk about ranked choice voting. What's your opinion on it? Have you heard good things, bad things? If you're on one side of the aisle, you probably think it's absolutely superior. If you're on the other side of the aisle, you may be pushing back just because the other side likes it. You may have no opinion whatsoever. If you're in the middle, you may think there's something to it and there are some downsides. Throw your comments down there. I just want to hear what everybody's opinions are because you hear discussion about it every once in a while in political circles, but some norm normie people don't actually talk about it or don't even know what's going on. So want to gauge the p- opinions of everybody out there. So our first article talking about the ranked choice voting comes from the New York Post. Hey, GOP, don't buy into Dems' ranked choice voting hype. So to explain ranked choice voting, normally how we go about doing our voting process is you say, I want candidate X and we, I want candidate B, C, D as you go down the list of possible candidates for different positions, whether it be governor, whether it be lieutenant governor or attorney general, all of these different positions, you basically got your two or three choices and you say, that's it. Now, with ranked choice voting, you don't just select one and say, this is where my vote is going. You say, okay, out of these three candidates, I want this one the most, I want this one the second most, and I want this one the third most, which opens up the possibilities of there being a lot of changing in how the ballot is actually calculated later on. Because if it turns out that the person you put as your first choice doesn't actually get enough votes if they don't surpass a certain threshold. And that can normally it's 50%, but it could be different in certain states if they want to make the law a little bit you know, wackier. Then that person, that will be eliminated, and your second choice will get the rest of, or your second choice will get your vote from that point on. And they slowly whittle it down until somebody gets over 50 or whatever percentage the state says is the max that they need, sorry, the minimum that they need, or... They're just going to throw out your ballot because you didn't put enough choices. And the people that, so if you put, uh, let's say, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and you put Newsom, if you put Donald Trump, Biden, Newsom, in, in any order, and all three of those candidates didn't get enough to make it through, then your vote gets discarded in the next section when it comes down to the other people that actually had more of a vote and were able to garner a large enough percentage to keep on going as they are eliminating other ballots. So basically, you can be your ballot can be completely discarded simply because the people that you wanted most were not on the top of everybody else's list. And you may be saying, well, that's kind of similar to how voting works now. You know, if I vote for a random third-party candidate and he doesn't get enough votes, I mean, it's basically like my ballot's being thrown away. But no, I mean... In practice, your voice is not being 100% brought into fruition. Ah, yes, whatever my wishes are, they shall happen. You know, my opinion is the utmost, the most important, sure. But you're still able to vote, and it still is represented in different polling information 
and the results of the election. Whereas with ranked choice voting, there's always a possibility that your ballot is thrown out. But that's enough of the descriptor of it. Let's get into the New York Post's analysis. Quote, on November 16th, Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat of Colorado, and Agnes King, Independent of Maine, introduced a bill to bribe state and local governments to embrace ranked choice voting. And, of course, you can see where the New York Post is coming from on this one, using the strong word of bribe, even though basically, you know, they're basically saying, well, no, here's an inducement. If you come to our side and you decide to put in a rank choice voting, then we'll actually give you a little bit of funding to help you do it. Now, is it really going to be as expensive as our funding says? Is it really going to be all 40000 that has to be used to re-engineer the system? Probably not. Maybe uh, some of that extra money could go somewhere else. Maybe some bonuses for some employees. So it's not necessarily a bribe, but you know, it could be considered that in some different lights. Quote, it's a confusing system that undermines the core democratic principles that straightforward elections and one person, one vote. And it may well favor Democrats. They're talking about rank choice, obviously. So Bennett and King want to dole out $40 million in federal grants to states that enact ranked choice voting for federal, state, and local elections. Under this newfangled system, voters rank multiple candidates instead of the tried-and-true method of voting for just one. So you can kind of see their appeal to tradition here, the appeal to status quo. Well, this is exactly how we have done it in the past, so why change it? That's their last one. I think the first one is ever more important, which is one person, one vote. That is extremely essential to our system. And whether or not it is still an appeal to a traditional view of how democracy operates, I think it really speaks to the underlying thought process here, which is your vote is as valuable as one tally. You in our system are valuable as one unit who gets to vote and determine the fate of the rest of the system. Whereas with ranked choice voting, you basically, basically get three chances, four chances at it, as well as the fact that your vote can be tossed out, like I mentioned before. So even though you can appear to have more of a say in the system because, oh, well, I can put down multiple people. I can actually have multiple says at different points of the election. If it, my you know, number one candidate gets thrown out, then my other two candidates could still beat out the person that I definitely do not want as the person that gets elected. And like I said, that feels empowering, but if you all your choices that you put down are gone, if you don't go far enough down the ballot, then you don't get a vote anymore. Your say doesn't matter. It's not like they call you back in and say, okay, well, hey, all your choices are gone. All the ones that you put down are gone. Uh, now you have to choose between these two final ones. It's no, no, that system doesn't exist at, at this point. It's just, okay, you didn't put it down. You're not coming back to fill out a ballot. You are just out of the equation. And yes, I understand if you're going for an obscure third-party candidate. We mentioned it before. I literally brought it up. If we're going for a third-party candidate, it can feel as though your vote doesn't matter anyway. But the fact that it is tallied, the fact that it shows in the statistics, like I mentioned, it speaks to, hey, okay, people can see this information. They can see, wow, 10% voted for RFK. Maybe a third candidate, poss uh, candidate 
third-party candidate is possible in the future. Wow, there was a really an up to, uh, uptick for the Libertarian Party this year. Maybe my vote won't be such a waste. Whereas if your vote, your ballot is completely thrown out and is no longer counted because you don't have the proper choices on there because you didn't rank them, then that statistical information doesn't actually reach the top. It doesn't bubble, and it doesn't allow for the public sentiment to change because it's not widely distributed. It's just, oh, whoever made it through the different rounds of ballots and whoever's ballots actually accounted for all those different candidates that made it, they're the ones that are actually deciding what's going on. So while I think, it, I, you know, I mentioned it, it's an appeal to tradition and those don't always work, I think in this case, talking about the principle behind the tradition is actually what the New York Post focused on pretty well in the first part of this article. So they also talked about how this is not going to benefit Republicans and how they're believing or they want to project that the Republicans are going to fall for this. So why are they saying it won't work for Republicans? Quote, their proposal even has a non-bipartisan veneer since Bennett is a Democrat and King technically an independent. Yet King caucuses with Democrats and votes with President Biden 99% of the time, making him one of the most reliable Democratic voters in the Senate. Besides, He's seen how ranked choice voting has blocked Republicans from winning competitive elections in his home state. Maine implemented ranked choice voting starting with the 2018 midterm elections. It was sold with similar promises of increased electoral competition and more normal election winners. Yet, it was largely championed by Democrats who despised Governor Paul LePage's two plurality victories in 2010 and 2014. Under ranked choice voting, he would almost certainly have lost both races. Democrats immediate, immediately benefited from the new system. In 2018, U.S. Rep. Bruce Palink, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, sir, a Republican, got the most votes in the first round with 46.33. He would have never won under the traditional system. Yet the final winner was Democratic Jared Golden, who initially only got 45.58. So this is the question that would definitely be more important out of the two. Well, okay, hold on. Are we going to implement ranked choice voting? Important question. But why is it going to be implemented? Who is it going to benefit? This is the important question for both sides. Because if the Democrats think it's going to benefit them, of course they're going to want to implement it. And if the Democrats are saying that it's going to help the Republicans, the Republicans really need to actually you know, dig in to some of the analysis here and understand what's going on. Now, I don't necessarily know if the data they're pulling out here, it feels a little bit more anecdotal than 100%. Oh, yes, this is the statistical breakdown of people who put a Republican as their second candidate after putting a Democrat as their first candidate and vice versa. And then also having a down ballot. So, okay, who they put as a third candidate, who they put as their, it was a Democrat, Republican. All this sort of information would actually need to be statistically broken down on a large scale to see what side it favors. But if we're to embrace their anecdote and we're to go off the top of the head, what is a majority of the population normally going to vote for? The sentiment has always been in politics that a majority of the American people would lean more Democratic. They just don't get out and vote. And that's why the Democrats are always concerned about getting out the vote with new people, bar har uh, harvesting ballots, things of that nature. Now, does that necessarily get affected by ranked choice voting? Not 100%. And then there's the question. There's the other question, which is who has more mainstream appeal? Are Republicans going to have more mainstream appeal or are Democrats? Right now, it feels like the grassroots sentiment is more with Republicans in that, hey, 
a lot of these people, they understand that inflation is hitting their checkbook. They understand that Republicans are trying to promote their businesses, things of this nature. And there's a feeling that the Democrats are now more on the side of the big donors, even though Republicans have historically had more of that image. So that means that Republicans are probably going to run more candidates who could appeal to the grassroots. Therefore, there's a more likely chance that they actually split the vote on rank choice voting because it's not like a primary system where one person emerges and everybody gets behind him. No, you can have multiple people after the primary who split the vote as they go into the ballot box for the final election. So that's one thing I think that the New York Post could talk about a little bit more that would actually benefit the Democrats more with ranked choice voting than Republicans rather than using an anecdotal evidence. And let's be clear, that that still is a little bit more anecdotal, but it has the fact of splitting the ballot behind it because we have prime examples of that. And they actually do point this one out, which is Alaska. You had two relatively popular Republicans going for the Senate seat, and then you had uh, Alaskan Democrat who was kind of unopposed on the Democratic side and came in and won the election. So she kind of stepped through the middle of the crowd here because of ranked choice voting, because they do have that implemented in Alaska. Quote, yet once ranked choice voting kicked in, that candidate support plummeted with far left candidates taking all four seats, including one candidate who only got 4% of the vote at first. Something similar happened in Alaska in the 2022 special election for the state's at-large congressional seat. Two GOP Senate uh, candidates split the 60% of the vote, yet Democrats, Democrat Mary Pallotta ultimately won in a state that voted for Donald Trump over Joe Biden by 10 points in 2020. So there would have to be more of a conceited or at least a more conscious effort from one side of the aisle to not run other candidates in order to split the vote for the one party. And uh, guess what? That is not the Republicans right now. The Republicans are not 100% unified. You have your MAGAs, you have your traditionals, you have your little bit of your Tea Partiers, the Libertarian group. You have a lot of different factions within the GOP that are vying for control right now, and that's not going to help them if ranked choice voting gets installed. So I think that's one point that the New York Post is really going after. And while I don't necessarily agree with everything they're saying, I think that this is something that does need to be contested. The beautiful thing about our federalist system is Alaska, Maine, any other state that wants to contest out this ranked choice voting, we can see how it works out for them, and then we can see if it should be adopted nationwide. Other states can take it in. They're basically their own little laboratories. You've probably heard this analogy before, where everything can be tested, and we can see if it bears any fruit. So coming into this next year, There may be a few more states that fall to ranked choice voting. There may be a few more pieces of legislation put out there that are really pushing for it. We'll see. And if it comes back to bite the Democrats in the butt, they may regret it. And if the Republicans go in and they're like, oh, yeah, this is a great idea, and then the Democrats come out winning a whole lot more, maybe the Republicans will regret that. We'll see. So our next article comes from Counterpunch, and the headline reads, We can have either billionaires or democracy not both. Um, you know, on premise alone, I, I don't agree. I mean, you can have rich people in a democratic society and you can have a democratic society with poor people. I mean, in theory alone, you can have a democratic society with anything. But, you know, let's let's at least give them a little bit of air. Let's see what they're trying to get at. I, when I went through the article initially, 
they were kind of criticizing democracy, but really this is just a way of them talking about getting the money out of the hands of the billionaires and using democracy as a cudgel in order to do it. So, quote, the Switzerland-based bank UBS just released its 2023 Billionaire Ambitions Report and concluded for the first time in nine editions of the report, billionaires have accumulated more wealth through inheritance than entrepreneurship. Ben Kawi, head of the strategic clients at UBS Global Wealth Management, said, this is a theme we expected to see more of over the next 20 years. As more than 1,000 billionaires pass on an estimated $5.2 trillion to their children. That's more than the economy of the entire United Kingdom. It's more than the economies of Canada and Mexico combined. So, what are they getting at here? And the reason that they bring up uh, more is being inherited rather than created through entrepreneurship. Because the argument that you'll very often hear from the right or people who are not in favor of inheritance taxes or taxing the wealthy is these people create value. The billionaires, they obviously got there because they were creating companies that people actually enjoyed. They were creating products and they were putting more value out into the marketplace. And that's why people responded by giving them money. And then they bring up the fact, well, okay, if that's true, then why are more of the billionaires going to be created from inheritance rather than from entrepreneurship? They're trying to cut this narrative in half and say, hey, it's not actually about the people that are creating value anymore. It's just those families that are keeping their uh, money, you know, locked into all these trusts and in the stock market. So I want to break this down, or at least I want to talk about it in a different way. The Rockefellers, uh, the Vanderbilts. Uh, the, the Rockefellers have kept some of their money, but the, the Vanderbilts, some of the other wealthiest families in American history and in world history, besides, you know, the actual royal crown in England, and even then they don't possess as much as they used to, but that's a different combination of things. Uh, how many of them are still as wealthy as they were at their peak? Well, not a lot of them. And why is that? Well, if you are a rich entrepreneur and you have two kids, guess what? Your inheritance gets split two ways. So yeah, if you make $50 billion during your lifetime, you're handing down $25 billion to each of your kids. I mean, that is a lot of money. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily persist. Guess what? Over the next generation, if they each person only has two kids, then each kid, if they were just to get the inheritance, not including what is spent during the lifetime, lost in business ventures, so on, they get $12.5 billion. And then they get... Uh, 6.25 billion, uh, sorry, 6.75 billion, so on and so forth. So you can see how eventually the money will disperse. You're not including the people that when they grow up in luxury, they have luxury tastes. So a lot of these families, even though they make a lot of money right now, that doesn't mean that they actually maintain their wealth. That doesn't mean that they are able to dominate the world forever. It's a cyclical thing. We see a lot of rich people handing down their wealth. Then those families die off as the next family comes up with a entrepreneur like the Fords who uh, came out of the mid-20s. And now the Ford family, they're still rich because of their country company, but they're not the, as rich as they once were when Henry Ford was dominating the market. I mean, the decline even started with his son who didn't have the same affect as him when it came to conducting business. So this idea that, yes, they're handing down their money and that's how we're maintaining the same number of billionaires, 
it doesn't matter because if the children are not positioned to take advantage of it and they're not actually able to utilize those billions of dollars, if they're not able to grow the empire that their father or mother or grandfather built through their own entrepreneurship, then guess what? It will slowly, slowly fall. Look at L'Oreal, I believe, or is either L'Oreal or Estee Lauder, one of the big makeup brands. They're currently having infighting between their family because of all the money, and they're not as rich as they once used to be. So that's why I find these sort of arguments, these appeals to, ah, well, they're just passing down their money. Yes, they're passing down their money, but guess what? If I pass down $100 to a person I know, and it's just a free handout, hey, here you go, Brody. Brody, this is just for you. And then Brody goes and uses it to buy food. Great. He goes and sustains himself for a little bit. But that doesn't mean that he's making more money off of that $100. Now, if he takes that $100, he invests it in a lemonade packet from Walmart in a table so he can sell lemonade at a lemonade stand. And then he's able to make $150 off of it. Then he uses that initial, you know, the 100 that he made out of the 150 he does it again and again and keeps buying what he needs to. And then every single time he's making $50 each time he's out there and each time he's investing uh, $100, then guess what? He's going to grow his wealth. Just because you hand money down to somebody doesn't mean that they're inherently going to keep it. It doesn't mean that they're just going to sit on their high horse and do absolutely nothing. Yes, you can strategically invest your money. Yes, you can build trust. You can put them in different companies. You can make your own company and still sit back and get dividends. But at the end of the day, you still have to be relatively smart with how you're utilizing that money. Otherwise, eventually it will go away. And if it's not you, you're just sitting on your nest egg and you're keeping your $25 billion that you got from that rich dad then guess what? Even if you don't grow it, you just keep the 25. Like I said, over generations upon generations, if everybody's still smart, they're not wasteful, the amount that is getting passed down is still going to shrink every single time. So to imply that, well, it's not entrepreneurship that's going to maintain these empires, it's just inheritance, is false. It's inheritance plus entrepreneurship plus pushing to make more profits and use that money in a smart way and not just sit there and do absolutely nothing. But yes, I, I do get their point, which is a lot of money is going to be handed down. And they're really frustrated about this. And I want to read one particular quote, which really, it just, it kind of, it hit me the wrong way. Quote, but this wealth transfer is directly the result of tax codes written to benefit the uber rich. ProPublica's 2021 analysis of tax returns of the richest Americans found that they pay an average of 3.4% in taxes, employing armies of lawyers to exploit every loophole carved out to offer special advantages to wealthy elites. Meanwhile, middle class and working class Americans pay digi uh, double digit tax rates. This is th what this amounts to is a collective theft from the government revenues. So um, that's the first part of the quote. And we're going to take a second. Yes. OK. If the tax code has loopholes, close the loopholes instead of the <laughs> the thing that they talk about is, oh, no, we need to install a more progressive tax. We need to make sure that we're shaving off at least a tenth or sometimes there's talk of, you know, five percent of what these billionaires make. And they're like, oh, well, these tax codes aren't doing well. Yes. OK, the tax codes right now have loopholes. How about you seal the loopholes, see how much revenue you can gain from that and then propose stealing or taking all of this extra money from them 
rather than just jumping straight to what you actually want to do. No, because you have a political agenda in mind, which is get the money out of their hands. And if you think I'm crazy for saying it that way, which is, oh, no, I just want the money. I don't want them to have it. It has to come to us. This is the next line in the article. Quote, it's time to reverse this trend by resorting to a concerted project of wealth distribution. It's time to wrest billions, if not trillions, out of the hands of billionaires and their heirs and pour it back to where it belongs to the rest of us. End quote. So there's the explicit endorsement. It belongs to the rest of us. It is not theirs. They have no right to it. They haven't worked for it. They haven't built it themselves. It is deserved by us, the people, the meager, like what? Oh. Not only is this so much arrogance as to imply that you deserve something that you haven't worked for, but also who is the us? What are we defining as the us? This is really important because if you define the us as the rest of society, you are directly saying it is okay to force somebody else to do something, give up their property, what they've earned, what they've worked for, even if it is just inheritance, you still had to deal with that parent for 18 years. I could consider that a little bit of work. That's kind of a joke, but maybe you could make an argument for it. You had to put up with being in their house and not getting disowned, sure. But what is the us? You're saying, okay, we as a society deserve the ability to take away somebody else's property and rights and their labor, the efforts of their labor, in order to benefit us. Where does that end? What happens when you're the person that is an amazing, amazing artist who can make not only great art, but functional art that actually serves a purpose in people's houses? It's uh, a filter for their water system as well as being a beautiful machine. And now the government says, oh, well, hey, we need these in every single museum. And, you know, it's for the benefit of us. It's for the benefit of society. You don't have the right to your works, your labor, your money, everything you invest into it. No, no, no. It's for the benefit of us. We deserve you and your knowledge and everything you bring to the society. So we're going to take it away from you. Come on. Where does this end? And yes, yes, the author even explicitly states this could be called socialism and then says, well, it's just called socialism because they're trying to fearmonger. No, it's called socialism because it is actually socialism. You are trying to detether the work, effort, and labor of people and the money they get from it from their right to own it. So it uh, th that is most definitely socialist in I, it just it frustrates me, and that's why I went on that little bit of a rant, and uh, that's why I had to speak about that one quote, because when I read it, I instantly knew I would say something about it on this podcast, because it is, uh, it is infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. You deserve nothing for simply existing. You have to work for everything. You don't just deserve respect for existing. You have to work for respect. You don't just deserve money for existing. You have to work for money. So... If you want to get that through your thick skull, come and have a conversation. If you Come and put it down in the comment section. Love to hear what everybody has to say about that one. So this next one, a little bit of a joke article, but it was a really cute one. And uh, we've talked about Texas secession for a long time, but Alternate is breaking it down once again. Texas could vote on a referendum to succeed from the United States this spring. Uh, is it actually going to happen? Probably not, but I'm just going to read one quote and uh, make sure that you keep your eye out for it, and I'll give you the interesting information. So maybe you can you know, pull it out at trivia night. Leader, quote, leaders from the Texas nationalist movement, which openly calls for the Lone Star State to succeed from the United States and become an independent nation again, appear to have surpassed the threshold to put a succession ballot initiative on the 2024 Republican primary ballot this March. 
Newsweek reported Friday that TNM, or Texas Nationalist uh, Movement, uh, President Daniel Miller delivered 139 and 456 signatures to the Republican Party of Texas headquarters in favor of a March 24 ballot referendum dubbed Texit, named that after UK's Brexit referendum in 2016. The Texas law require, only requires 5% of the total vote received by all candidates for the governor in the governor's primary most recent gubernatorial uh, to actually get it on the ballot. In 2022, there were, yeah, you don't need to know that part. Basically, there were uh, around 2 million ballots that were cast in that primary, and about 5% of that is somewhere around 100,000 signatures, and they definitely surpassed that. So it, it can go as a referendum. Now, when the referendum is voted on by the populace, the government doesn't necessarily have to take it up. Texas has a history. The article goes on to talk about how 13 of the last 14 referendums that have been put up on the ballot have been voted on and passed by the population of Texas. Like I said, the government doesn't actually have to take it up if the population of Texas actually passes it, but you know, it at least puts a little bit of pressure on them. So we could be seeing this here sooner rather than later. Uh, then they go on to talk about how, well, maybe the U.S. government will actually intervene and they'll try to start another war to keep Texas uh, in the nation or something like that. I don't see that one happening, but uh, I, I'm going to throw my hands up. I could be wrong. Texas loves Texas. I mean, nobody loves Texas more than Texans. So at the end of the day, who knows? Maybe the government does step in and is like, no, 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 we need your ranches. We need your cowboy ranches. We need the Dallas Cowboys. We can't live without those. We're going to stop you from succeeding. Actually, that'd be interesting. So would the NFL become an international league? Because they already play in England, but would they become an international league with teams from other countries if the Dallas Cowboys were now based in Texas and now they were their own nation? That'd be really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm really interested, actually. I want to see this happen now just to see the logistics of that. So uh, with all that, we've gone through most of our articles. Let's jump to our Daily Delight, which is a fun one. And the headline reads, Cat takes adopted ducklings for a walk along the river. And this is coming from Laughing Squid. So there's not much text to this article, so I'm only going to really give you one quote. There's a lot more videos that are embedded here of this cute cat and these uh, really adorable ducklings. Quote, a beautiful long-haired cat confidently led her adopted brood of ducklings along a rocky path to a river so that they could relax by the water. While the ducklings walked separately, they were sure to keep a close eye on their feline mother. And they cuddle this cat like it's their mom. They play with him like it's the mom. I mean... Honestly, this cat is just the duckling mama at this point. And I, we've seen a few videos like this before, but this one is absolutely adorable. And if you want to check it out in the description below that like and subscribe button, also down there you can find the link to all of today's stories as well as the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>